What's up, dudes? This is Alternate Take, and I am your host. Welcome back, my bitches. On this episode, we brought you the legendary comedian from Pacoima. That's right, dude. Pacoima's crazy. I went there once, and I haven't been back, but maybe I'll go back. Maybe I'll go back. I don't know if, I don't know if my, our guest still lives there or not, but I'm getting off track. Our guest today was Gilbert Escobel. Gilbert Escobel has been a comedian for over 30 years now. And, dude, he's he's one of the funniest guys out there, man. And he's... Dude, his story is fucking awesome, man. I mean, uh, you guys are going to hear it right now. But the his journey to get to being a comedian and uh, his outlook on life. He truly is a fucking really cool person, man. And, and I... I uh, dude, I even got a little emotional in it. I didn't cry and shit. Don't judge, motherfuckers. Real men cry. Tupac. But I, but he was saying some things that were just hidden a little deep. So, um, and I, and I, and I respect that, man. It was awesome. So, uh, I'm gonna shut up, and uh, I want you guys to hear the great wisdom of of this awesome guest. I bring to you, comedian Gilbert Escovel. What's up, bro? What's up, Mr. Escovel? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Good, man. Just- good. Well. For uh, all you alternate take listeners, man, uh, joining the show is a uh, comedian Gilbert Escobel, man. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. Hell yeah, man. Well, uh, I want to start off with a little bit of background, man. That's how I usually do all of our guests. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, where you're raised and all that good stuff, and like, you know, your background, how you, how you got to be Gilbert Escobel, man. Well, I, uh, mom and dad um, were, uh, my, well, they were in the farm working, you know, business and. That's how they hooked up and met in a little town in Idaho called Parma. And he was passing through and she was passing through and they connected and out came me. (laughs) So, well, you know, we continued to go throughout the country working in the fields, living in labor camps, you know, temporary shelter for the farmhands and uh, for the field workers. And uh, I did that till the age of probably around, we did that to the age of about four lived in labor camps and I stayed working in the fields till the age of about seven and uh parents traveled all over the well you know mom and dad you know split up but traveled all over the country lived uh you know I lived that we got brothers born in every state in the union almost and I'm exaggerating <laughs> we got a brother born in Florida Texas Michigan two in California two in Michigan two in California uh you know I was like I said I was born in Idaho and we lived in many states in between so and we ended up settling in L.A. in 1979. Uh, I'm sorry, 74. 74, settled in L.A. And, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how we got here. Wow, that's interesting, man. Um, I, I didn't know that about you. Do you think, uh, going back from those times, that any of that has to do with, like, your, your work ethic as a comedian? Like, just learning how to just, you know, work from the fields from such a young age? I mean, that's, that's pretty brutal work, dude. Yeah, well, when, you know... I always tell people, you know, when you're a little kid, seven years old, and you're working in the fields and you get up at five, four or five o'clock in the morning and, you know, it's still cold out there and the morning dew is all over the the, the, the plants and you're with a, a garden hoe walking, you know, through acres and acres of this stuff and you're soaking wet and you're freezing in the morning and then the sun comes up and by noon, from noon to about three, you're baking in the sun and still walking back and forth, cleaning out the weeds from between the the the, the plants. You know, it's it it makes you say to yourself, "I never 
you either you say, I never want to do this ever, or you're going to get used to it. And that's all you're going to do. Like many of my family did. But I said, no, this is not for me. I'll never do this. So it motivated me not to uh, ever want to do that kind of work. <laughs> no, hell yeah, man. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the biggest pussy there is. I, I, I couldn't even pull weeds in my backyard. I hated it, but, <laughs> and that's just a small little surface area, you know, but I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. You don't hear that often. My, my grandma actually has like a cool story about that too. Cause she came from, um, uh, Zacatecas actually. And I remember when she came over to the United States, she had mentioned that like, like they would actually like, uh, pick cotton on the freeways on the way on the way here, they would pull over and be like, Oh, like there's cotton, right. And they would pick it. And like, and actually like for fun though, like this is like, this was fun. Like they would go do it and like, Oh, we can make clothes with this. I'm like, you guys are nuts. Like Jesus Christ, man. Like, but you understand why they have the work that they do and why they, and why they're so humble, man. Like it's a, it's a difficult thing, but they, you know, you take it around with it and you just, you make it yours, man. It's unbelievable. Well, what happened was when that one time I remember they came and they, the, they threatened my grandmother not to be, they told her, you can't have him out here. He's got to be in school. He's only seven years old. I was in the second grade, but I was out in the fields instead. My friends were in school and I was out in the fields. So uh, she did it anyway. She took me out there. And then one time uh, the guy was coming and she said, hide the, the, the hoe, the alzadon, we could the alzadon. Hide the hoe. <laughs> they talked to a pimp. Hide your hoes. <laughs> And uh, so anyway, I threw the hole down and, and, and then the guy saw it was only obvious and he threatened her said, if you if I ever see him here again, I'm calling, you know, child services. So uh, she ended up taking me to school instead, but they would go into the fields. They'd be working at six o'clock in the morning already. School didn't open till like what, 730. Kids wouldn't get there till like 730. You know, I was there about 530 waiting in the back of the school because she would told me not to come to the front. You got to wait in the back. And now this is out in the middle of nowhere. There was not a soul in sight. And I would be there for a good hour, hour and a half every day waiting by myself, just by myself in the back of a school and nothing, no one to talk to. And all you do is create in your own mind. You create theater of the mind. You got to do something to keep yourself entertained. And that's what I would do. I would just let my imagination flow. And that's why now I'm in the creative business. And I believe it's because of that. My mind is always, always wandering, always creating, always daydreaming, always thinking of something. And I think it's because of that. Yeah, man, that, that makes a lot of sense, honestly. And um, I, when did you start seeing your creativity uh, like really take off? Is that like when you're, like you said, when you're in L.A.? What, what part of L.A. were you at? Pacoima. I grew up in Pacoima. Uh, we came out here. Uh, we used to live in Lodi as well. And I started oh. my schooling in Lodi. I uh, went from Head Start to see part of the second grade. Then we moved to Michigan and uh, uh, in 69. And then uh, I spent part of the second grade there and part of the second grade in Idaho. That's when I was waiting behind the school. And, the, and that was temporary. Uh, so I went to like probably three different schools in the second grade, <laughs> but uh, ended up coming to California. Um, you know, I can't really pinpoint when my creativity started, but I do know that I've been entertaining people since I was three years old. My father used to make me dance in front of the family when we used to live in the labor camp. And I remember he used to make me dance to a song called Treat Her Right. And he taught me a dance called The Dirty Dog. And I remember the whole family laughing and I got hooked. I got hooked on entertaining, on getting, making people laugh. Cause I would do it in the second grade. I would do it in the fourth grade. I'm sorry, in fourth grade, 
I started doing it in the fourth. No, I'm sorry, in the third grade. I started doing it in the third grade during show and tell and the fourth grade and all through junior high. I was always naturally funny, you know, and uh, it was nat- it was natural to me. Yeah. You know, what's funny, too, is like when you force uh, when you force someone to do that, like a kid to do that and they're naturally funny, they just fucking thrive in it, man. They really do. Like uh, I have like a little it's like a little brief thing. But like with my I remember with my nephew, it was very similar. I remember when he was a kid, you do, we do the classic when he falls, you know, everyone like. If you do like, oh, me, are you okay? Then they start crying when you do that. You fucked up. Like, you gotta, we would try to trick them. So we would do like, oh, good job. Hell yeah. Clap for them. And we go, woohoo, we do all that stuff. And then uh, one time he fell and it was just like a fucked up fall. It was hilarious. So we just all started laughing. And he had to be like, I think about like not even a year old. He had to be like nine months, 10 months. And it's funny because like his reaction was like, you can tell he's about to cry. And then he immediately stopped. He didn't cry. And then he saw that we were laughing and then he started falling on purpose to laugh. (laughs) And then when, when, and then we would laugh, he would die laughing. Ah, Like, like, cause we, cause he made us laugh and it's like, wow, he doesn't even know English for God's sakes. He's a little baby. So like, if you're, I'm assuming he's maybe naturally funny and he's, he liked that reaction and was like, I'm just going to keep doing it then. And so if, if you're naturally funny and then you're forced to be put on stage, um, dancing for your family, whatever, it's probably going to work out for you. Yeah. Yeah, and matter of fact, uh, if I do my one-man play, because uh, I got people that want me to do my one-man show, it's basically going to be about that, about the whole story about my dad, because my dad was murdered, and my dad was one of those wow. dads that was making babies and leaving. He was a wife beater and a cheater, alcoholic, drug addict, you know what I mean, heroin right. addict. So it was that story you hear a lot of, but I always felt cheated out of life. And until I realized when I was at the MGM in Vegas performing, and that's when I realized that my dad is the one that made me an entertainer. So from that day, that was 2012, I realized that I wasn't cheated in life. My dad left me with a trade. Yeah, no <laughs> he made shit. Me who I am. So like you just said, you guys turned that little kid into someone like, hey, falling ain't a bad thing. It's actually kind of cool. It gets a good reaction. That's how I looked at it. And I've fallen on my face trying to, I remember in, in show and tell when they said, you know, we never had anything to show. I, I only would tell. So I would get up there and I didn't know what I was going to say. I would just look around and talk about stuff off the head. And uh, I didn't care if I fell on my face. I would, and that's what it takes to be a great comedian. You can't be afraid to fall. Oh, 100%, man. Um, well, speaking of that, man, when, when did you, uh, when did you start doing open mic? Like what I always like to ask comedians though, too, especially like, uh, how long did it take you to convince yourself to finally go? Because a lot of times people are like, oh, right away. It, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do it and I went the next day. But some people are like, man, I was nervous for like months and I finally said, OK, I'm going to go. And then that's it. You got addicted and then it took off. Um, people always told me you should do comedy, you should do comedy. But I never took it seriously. But one time I went to a comedy club uh, at the Improv and uh, my wife and I, we, we weren't we weren't married yet. We were dating. And, and uh, no, we were married. I take it. We just gotten married. Uh, but we walked into a club to the improv and Brad Garrett was on stage and he started picking on me because we walked in late. So I threw something back at him and everybody started laughing. And he said, hey, I'm the comedian around here. And yeah. I said, you know, under my breath, I said, well, then do your jokes because I can do this all day long. <laughs> we do this in the projects for free. You know what I mean? In the projects in the hood, you got to always have the last word or else you lose. That's the truth, so, man. Seriously. You know, so so I was brought up like that. So, you know, I left him alone, though. I didn't bug him. You know, he left me alone, he, you know, 
And I enjoyed the show. I enjoyed the show. So I told my brother, I go, hey, man, there's this place you go and you drink beer and you hear jokes. Guys get up there and they tell jokes. Let's go. Let's go. It's a comedy club. So I go, all right, let's go. Well, the day we were there and we went and took our wives and they messed up because they put us both in the front row. They put me and my clown brother, me. <laughs> oh, shit. You know, we come from a family of clowns, bro. That's all we do is clown <laughs> each other. They put us in the front row. And you know how comedians do to people in the front row? Oh. And we didn't know. We thought, okay, well, let's do this. Man, we were spanking the comedians, man. We were one by one. They were giving up. The one guy walked off the stage. And he was on the Tonight Show about a month later. Damn. And uh, my, my brother just destroyed him. And... uh they asked if anybody wanted to get up and tell a joke. And I said, I do. I got up and I told a joke that I had heard a comedian say. And there was these two guys that were sitting in the front and they were biased, but they weren't laughing. They didn't laugh once at any of the comedians. When I told that joke, these guys spit their beer out of their mouth, man. Damn. And yeah. So when we got up to leave that night, everybody started applauding for us. They, they started clapping for us. And the comedian that was up there who was on the, the Oprah Winfrey show, you know what I mean? Later. Yeah. Said, oh, no, hey, don't do this. It's not supposed to be like this. You're not, the audience is supposed to get the applause. We are. Can you guys stay until my show, my act is done? So we're like, all right. So we sat down and then we left. But the guy said, hey, we're going to have open mic if you ever want to come back. So I did. I went back and they didn't have the open mic. And I was ready, man. I had my stuff ready that I was going to talk about. And, uh, but instead I, uh, something happened that night that I never went back to a comedy club again because I had a bad experience. I saw a comedian go off on somebody in the audience, really bad, really mean, cussing yeah. out his wife and everything. And I never went to a comedy club again. Cause I said, cause if somebody would have talked to my wife like that, I would have been in jail. You wow. Ready so to go back. So I never went back to a comedy club, but I wanted to get into acting. I wanted to get into acting. And I used to work with a guy who was an actor and he told me, you know what you should do is get into comedy because comedy, a lot of agents, I mean, a lot of producers, they go to comedy clubs to look at comedians and comedians don't have to go through agents like everybody else does. So I said, all right, I'm going to try that. So I did, man. I got into, I got into, I took a comedy class to learn how to, to learn the business, you know? Right. And, and I learned how you get into it, how to go look for open mics. And next thing you know, I did. And I went and I performed at the uh, improv. Uh, for my first time and my first, I killed it. I killed it, man. I never, I, I've never been one of these comedians who struggled in the beginning because they weren't funny. Like Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, those guys, they weren't funny for the first four years of comedy, they said. Jay right. Leno said, I was awful. For the first four years, I was awful. But he looked at it as a college. Me, I never had that problem, bro. I was a natural, man. I, I killed it. I matter of fact, when I first had a bad set, uh, I had already had been doing comedy for about maybe a year. And the first time I had a bad set, I really, it hurt. And I never wanted to do comedy again. But right. Willie Barcena talked me into it. He said, nah, it happens. This is what happens. So I said, man, you know what? It was a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, by the way. <laughs> which I do a joke about it now. And, uh, but yeah, bro, I, I started, that's how I never, I've always been fortunate. I've always been, I've always done good. 99 percent of the time i've done well it's it's always interesting to hear like the the people that are are really the truly most natural comedians are people that have some fucking crazy upbringing that's the only ones because 
there's other people that can be funny. Don't get me wrong. They can be clever and they can drop like some very like joke you don't see coming. And like a, like, like a Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan's clever, funny. And like, he'll say things that are like, like, like stoner thoughts. And I think it's hilarious. He's funny, but like, and his childhood was pretty deep, but it's like, I hear like your stories and like our Felipe Sparza stories or, or Joey Diaz and their childhoods are just nuts. And like, that's what makes you guys so goddamn funny is because, I mean, you use humor from when you're young. Like you said, you're talking trash to each other in the projects, man. And it's like, there's no other fucking, there's no other way to live. That's the only way, that's the only way you know how to live. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a bad way. You know, we talk about each other's moms, but we know we're not talking about our moms. We're just talking about mama jokes. Right. Personal because we know it's not personal. Right. Yeah. Fun. And so, because if you really were serious about somebody's mom, you would get beat up quick by by their mom. Their mom would come and beat you up. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. yeah, no, you know, it's it's. And I always tell people, if I were to talk about my life in a serious way, I would cry, but I can't. That's why I gotta make fun of everything. I have to make fun of everything. Otherwise, I uh, I can't talk about serious stuff. I cry. My emotions are like right here. You know what right. I mean? So, but I have always found that when I make people laugh, it's a lot better. Yeah, one hundred percent, man. And there, there is like that little saying, like the uh, the funniest guy in the room is also the first one to cry, just behind closed doors. That's usually that's usually how it goes, man. Because I mean, you're you're the most emotional. You're the you're the funniest one. You're the most talented, man. It's it comes with the whole baggage of the shit, man. That people just don't realize unless you're talented and you can un- you can understand it. And someone else like, oh, he's talented. He probably goes through some shit. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of times, too, is, you know, like comedians, we're very insecure, very, very insecure, most comedians. And another thing is we're not very good at anything else. You know, <laughs> we're really not. I mean, I, I, I can I can I'm pretty good. I can shoot a little bit of basketball. I'm pretty good. I'm I'm decent at everything. But when I come to when it comes to laughter, I'm king. Yeah, I, I'm I'm at I'm on sitting on a throne. Uh, that's where I'm at my best. So, you know, that's why I think comedians, a lot of comedians are like that. They're at their best when they're being funny. That's what they do best. Make people laugh. Right. Which is why it's so fucked up when like you have a bad set. Cause you're like, this is what I do best. And like, I, and I sucked. So like, what do I do? What am I good at? Nothing. You're good like, point. That's a good point. Yeah. I never looked at it like that, but you're absolutely right. You're right. Cause when I have a bad set, I take it hard. Yeah. And I mean, I've had bad sets. Don't get me wrong. I've had, you know, I've had them and they, they're, they're so awful. I, I just, I take it personally, man, because you're right. You know, it's like always being like the prettiest girl in school. And all of a sudden you go somewhere and you're the ugly duckling. Yeah. Gosh, you know, next time you go back, you have extra makeup on. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to go overboard. (laughs) Exactly. I never looked at it like that. Wow. Yeah, man. Good insight. so what were your first, uh, like the first clubs that started giving you the most work I w- you, when you first started like getting a name for yourself and like you're, you're killing open mics and you start getting a little bit noticed? Well, we had a problem. We had uh, George Lopez, Carlos Mencia, and uh, uh, Paul Rodriguez. They, already, they were the token Latino comics. Every club already had their token Latino comic. You know what I mean? Mencia was the comedy store comic. Rodriguez was the improv comic, and Lopez, he was the, uh, the the Laugh Factory comedian. So they already met their quota. And us Latinos, we had a bunch of young Latino comics like myself and Willie Barcena, 
you know, there was a bunch of Quentin, Gutierrez, Freddie, uh, Asparagus, Chacha Sandoval. There's a lot of these people that were out there and we couldn't get no, we couldn't get into the clubs. And they kept saying to us, you guys are too ethnic, that we were too ethnic. Because all we were talking about was a Latino experience. Right. You know, which was true. I mean, what am I, what am I, what am I supposed to talk about? Cafeteria food? <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't go to college. You know what I mean? What's yeah. about my college days? You know, we don't. We talk about the hood. We talk about drugs. We talk about growing up with domestic violence. You know, I talk about all that stuff, you know. And, but they couldn't handle that, you know. And, so they wouldn't let us perform. So okay. we had to go to the bars of East LA and to the clubs of South Central. And we had to perform in the black comedy clubs. We had to do the black comedy circuit and these crazy bars in LA that had to change their names every month because they were so dangerous. People were scared to go there. You wow. know, like, yeah, like uh, TQ, uh, TQs in East LA. It was tequilas, it was TQs. It was this, it was that, and now it's called Rudy's. <laughs> Bro, but that place right there, man, the audience was funnier than the comedians a lot of times. It was a very crazy place. And then we did the Black Angus and Alhambra. We had to do restaurants, bro. We had to do nightclubs. Fuck. That we got our, that's where you got your Jeff Garcia's, your Willie Barcenas, your Johnny Sanchez, Gabriel Iglesias, Felipe Esparza. We all came out of the out of those clubs and restaurants and look at Felipe ended up winning best the, the for the last comic standing Willie Barcena did the tonight show over eight times uh fluffy forget it look at fluffy you know yeah so do the, the Lakewood hop the Lakewood hop the La Puente Hills hop those those were our comedy clubs bro we had to use I used to do a host a karaoke night just so that I can get up on stage and tell jokes between the singers. And I would have to sing just so I could tell jokes. <laughs> any, I did that. I any, did it. I did whatever I could, bro, to get on stage. I would perform at a Denny's in front of a booth, four people. And that was my stage. I mean, you know, we did whatever we could do because they wouldn't let us into the clubs. Well, when the Latino comedy explosion, we started having nights that were selling out. We were packed, bro. These clubs are packed. And now the comedy clubs came after us. The Laugh Factory started Latino night on Monday nights. The Ice House started a Latino night. And man, the next thing you know, the improv started a Latino night. Everybody wanted the Latino night. And a lot of us, we got stronger and stronger. Johnny Sanchez went on to star in uh, Mad TV. You know, uh, Jeff Garcia, I don't know how many movies, those animations, Jeff did Happy Feet and all those cartoons. He was in all of those. Fluffy became a phenom. Felipe was a champion, you know. I mean, just goes on and on, bro. You know, it's, yeah. The clubs didn't let us in, though, at first. That's crazy. How dumb of a motherfucker had to be to not let Mexicans in a club in fucking L.A.? Like, that's that's most of your audience. Why would you not want them there? That's going to be money like a, you know, like a, like, it's going to be ridiculous. Well, here's the thing. We weren't funny. We weren't funny at first, bro. You know why? Because how can you be funny if nobody lets you? It's like a boxer. How are you going to get into become a champion if you can't even go into a gym? They don't let you into a gym to work out. So right. you got to make up. You got to make like Michael Carbajal. You got to make your own gym in your backyard. Right. And he became a champion from his backyard. That's what we had to do. We had to create those Michael Carbajal gyms. Right. And not, now we got our champions, bro. 
it's just crazy that like these these in this metaphor, these gym owners wouldn't want a good boxer in their gym. Like, are you? I, I don't. Well, get we that. weren't good boxers yet. Yeah. We had to get better. You can't become a good boxer till you work out. You learn. You learn, and that's oh, yeah. what we did. We got better and better. Matter of fact, let me give you an example. One time we were doing a show at TQ's. It's on the corner of Pomona and Atlanta. It's called Rudy's. And Jeff Garcia was on stage. And he said something. He started, said something to this guy in the audience who had thick glasses. He goes, look, look at you, look at you. Look at you, you, your thick glasses are so thick, you can see into the future. And that homeboy didn't miss a beat. Everybody started laughing. No, that homeboy came right back. Yeah, and I see you don't have one. Oh, <laughs> shit. Bro, bro, the whole place erupted. Damn. Jeff walked off the stage. That's how wow. Jeff learned from that. He learned from that right hook. Never, never to keep your guard down. He, he always learned to keep your guard up. That's how you learn, bro, the hard way. Willie Barcena. Willie Barcena, man. You know how many times Willie Barcena got one time some guy uh <laughs> he, had, he had an issue with this motorcycle club called uh, I don't want to say their names, but they're very feared. And uh, there was a couple of guys there, and he disrespected them comedic-wise. Man, they followed him to the gas station, bro. No way. <laughs> phone call. He had to make a phone call to somebody in his family who knew somebody. They finally, they saved him, bro. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, there was other times when guys lifted their guns up, you know what I mean? The comedians, you know, you know, trying to talk to him. Humboldt just showed his gun. He's like, oh, all right, never mind. And I remember one time this one a guy who just got out of prison, just got out of prison. And I started messing with him, man. I was bagging on him, man, because I, I gave him a chance to come up and do comedy and all. He put on a fashion show. So I started going off on him, man, I give you a chance and this and that and whoop, whoop, and you want to come up here. And he got mad. He started to rush the stage. Luckily, my little brother was there. My little brother's half Russian and half Mexican. So he's a big boy, you know. He stood right in front of him. He just shook his head. No, nah, I don't think so. And that homeboy just sat back down. <laughs> but these were the kind of things that we had to deal with, bro, in order to get better. But we got better. We got stronger. And then they couldn't deny us anymore. Right. You know, they couldn't deny us anymore. Now, Lopez, not Lopez, but uh, Paul Rodriguez and Carlos Muncia, they were coming to us to open for them. They were coming to us so they can do a show to draw people. Because right. Paul can't sell tickets on his own. He needs us now. You know, Paul can't sell. Paul, Paul's a legend. I love Paul. Oh, yeah. But but Paul can't sell tickets on his own, and he knows it. So he gets a bunch of us. So he wins, and we win. But the thing is, that's how the Latino comedy explosion started, with Willie Barcena. Wow. Willie Barcena is the person who is responsible for the Latino comedy explosion. Wow. Not Paul, not George, not Carlos. Willie Barcena. That's unbelievable, man. That's crazy. And when when was your, I guess you can say your comedy explosion? Like when you when you finally thought, okay, like now I'm actually notable and like now I can get work pretty much a lot like most places I, I really if I want to get work there, I'm pretty sure I can still get it there wherever I want to go. Uh I'm I don't think I ever got there. I've never got there, but I did I there's enough work without that. Yeah. There's a, in other words, it was a, this is what I always tell people. We didn't do it by ourselves. None of us did it by ourselves. Yeah. Gabriel didn't even do it by himself. We all did it together, bro. It was a unit. It was a unity thing. It was a, I forgot. I don't know the word. It was like a living, like a, it was a one giant thing. It was like, for example, we, we've done a show that we do. It's called the, the East side comedy and old school dance. 
we've been doing this since 1999 and we sell out. Damn. And the thing is, I always tell people, either you need a high profile name, like a Lopez, Richard Pryor, somebody, Joe Rogan, like that. Those are high profile names if you want to sell tickets. If you don't have a high profile name, you need a high concept name, like Naked Ladies of Comedy. Oh, what, what? Naked Chicks? Yeah, boom. It's the concept. You you hook them with the concept. So yeah. ours was Latino comedy. It was all of us. It, not, not a single one of us had a name yet. Gabriel does now. Gabriel's there. And Felipe now. They got a name. But before, we didn't have that. We had to do it together. But because we did it together, there was plenty of work for all of us. You know, you know, it's it's interesting, man. As um, I remember uh, Gabriel Iglesias mentioned that when he was doing his movie and all the guys that he had on his movie, the actors, every, everything he was doing was all comics that, that, helped, that came up with him and whatnot, man. And that's 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 just proof right there, man, that you guys really did do it. Man, I've, I've heard uh, countless podcasts, countless interviews with all the all the, like Rudy Moreno, all these guys. Man, and they and they talk about that religiously, man. So you guys did it together like there was no single man that eventually someone took off eventually but like i mean it half the jokes a lot of times were inspired by you guys everyone else that was around you guys are just it's that's interesting man it's badass we were we were we get that gang mentality <laughs> yeah, the best gang mentality exactly <laughs> buttercream gang fucking badass that's awesome so um so how long have you been doing comedy now 30 years 30 years wow 30 that's years. a that's a huge milestone did you ever think you're gonna get to 30 years no, I actually, I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, but I don't know. I don't know anything else. Yeah. I don't know anything else. You know, uh, I, uh, I, I always said, if I don't, if I don't see anything happening in five years, I'm going to get out, but it kept happening. Things keep happening. Things keep, I got some good things that keep coming up, Vegas stuff and, you know, good things. I'm going to be doing the Greek October 9th. I'm hosting at the Greek. Oh, hell yeah. I've opened for the Jacksons at the Greek. Uh, comedy's taken me out uh, to Japan, Okinawa, to, to Mexico. I've done, I've done prisons. I've done over sixty, about I'm almost over sixty prisons across the country and Mexico. Wow! You know, doing comedy, and I, I tell you what, man, comedy has taken me to places that I would have never ever gone without it. You know, Hawaii and uh, places like that where they paid me to go. Right. You know? So for 30 years, and and you know, this is what I, I've never shot up like a game brule or any of these guys, but I've seen a lot of comedians shooting stars. They came, they shot up, and they left. They got their TV shows, they got their movie deals, they got their everything, but now you don't see them anymore. They're gone. They're history. Yeah. It's like the 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 hare and the rabbit, the rabbit and the hare. You know, the rabbit shoom, burned out, but the hare just steadily. Steady for 30, 30 years, bro. I raised two daughters, you know, buying a home, by have had the new cars. I've I've lived a life that a field worker could only dream, can't even dream of. Beyond my wildest dreams. My dream was just never to go work in the fields. That was my dream. That was my goal. And for me, through comedy, to be able to do this is amazing. Even for 30 years, bro. 30 years. Wow. Look at Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, you know, I always tell people, you know, it, it, it's it's not how big you get and how famous and how rich you get. It's your character, how you treat people, how you treat your life, 
how you act in life, you know, because I don't care how rich and famous and successful you are. If you mess up and you act a fool and you do things wrong, you ain't going to last. Yeah. Ah, man. That's what happens, bro. You got to stay humble. You got to stay righteous. You know what I mean? You have to. You got to be righteous, bro. If you're not righteous, you're going to deal with the consequences. You know, right. nobody's perfect, but hey, go go for it. <laughs> you don't have to be perfect, but go for it. <laughs> how, how do you like a... How do you maintain that discipline for you? Because I, I mean, obviously comedians can be very erratic. We can be very irrational. It can be very impulsive, all these things, um, which makes them fall down those rabbit holes. You know, uh, Kinnison, you know, and, and all these guys are just, they just do some crazy shit. And uh, how did you find it to be like, was it difficult for you to like control those emotions for you too? Or like, you're just naturally. Kind oh of- yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've had my, I've had my, uh, my wayward, what do you call that? Straying, my abstract. I strayed from the right way, you know, but before I started doing comedy, see, I believe I'm, I'm one of these kind of guys. I believe in good and evil. I believe in heaven, hell. I believe in God. I believe in all that stuff. So that's the kind of stuff that I was not raised with, but in a way I was, you know, we, we grew up believing in that stuff, you know? So I've always had this fear of, of, of someone bigger than me. You know, I've always had that. And I'm glad I've had that because it's kept me, in line and when i've strayed that belief system has always kept me from not going too far and before i got into comedy i already had seen how hollywood eats its young hollywood fame will fame is cannibalizes itself fame will eat you alive steve harvey said i would not wish fame on my worst enemy you know because hollywood does hollywood eats its young and I always, when I, when I got into comedy, you know, I was working at a store and I remember I went to the back of the store and I just said a prayer. And I just said, you know, if this comedy business takes me away from, from you or if it messes up my marriage, I want nothing to do with it. You wow. know, I don't want to be one of those kind of comedians that loses their family. Cause I was already married. I already had my daughter, you know, and I didn't want to lose that. Cause my dad, like I told you, my mom, my dad was murdered. He was a drug addict, heroin addict, wife beater. And I always said, I don't want to be like that man. I don't want to be like that. I want to be there for my kids. So I wanted that. That was my marriage was more important to me than my comedy and my relationship with God was more relate, more important to me than fame and fortune. So that was the deal I made with God. I said, if this thing takes me away from you, I don't want it. And if it ruins my marriage, I don't want it. But I, I you know, and, and you know what, bro? I never traveled. I've, ne- I've worked at home. I was able to stay with my family. I've been married for 34 years. Raised my daughters are both grown and very successful, both of them. And uh, in my relationship with God is healthier than better than ever. So I, I, you know, I got my cake and I ate it too. So, <laughs> well, you know, what's you know, what's great about that too, man, is that like, it seems as if like what you're saying, I, I actually like the 30 year, it's almost like a journeyman. Like you go, it's like a blue, it's, you have a blue collar approach to comedy, even though it's a non blue collar uh, atmosphere, it's completely not, but it's actually better. Like you said, the ones that burn out, like Eddie Murphy killer for, I don't know how many years, but then the movies come and then that's it. Then he starts making shitty movies. And then now he's just like, now it's like, you don't even want him to come back. I don't want to see him do stuff before. Like, you know, like I, you, already, you already did it all. You did the best. I don't want to see like what fucking horrible jokes you have now. Like, it, But 
it feels like I would rather have your setup than like a setup like his, to be honest, where it's just like you, it's like every year you get an inch better every year, you get an inch better. And you have a 30 year long time career as to where that, it just, that seems like brutal, man. That seems like too much ups and downs. And it just doesn't even seem enjoyable. Like the way you're saying. And, and um, it's funny because I actually like that you mentioned like the God thing. I'm not like a, a religious person in general, but I do believe in active act as if God exists. I do believe that 100%. So like, uh, and, and if you do that, then you'll generally be a very, that's a, I think that's a, I read that in a Jordan Peterson book. And if you do that in general, um, you're, you're a godly person. You really are. Like, you're just a great person. Like your, your morals and ethics are in, are in, are in place with not just other people, but yourself. And you'll generally live a pretty good, nice, uh, pretty good life, man. And it sounds like you're doing that. Yeah. I know a lot of people like that. You know, I know a lot of people like that. They may not be religious, but they, they do believe in someone bigger than them. They don't understand it. But you're right. They live as if, you know, according to what they believe. I always believe that. I believe that you are what you believe. I don't care what you say you believe. You are what you believe. And whatever it is that you say you believe and you don't, it'll show in your actions. But there's a lot of people, like you said, I know a lot of people like that. And it's been like that through history. They've always known they don't know God, but they know that there's someone there and they have a certain respect and awe of that and those people are usually pretty successful because yeah. of the way you know it keeps them in line it keeps them in check you know right i have a i thought about this too i was thinking did you ever go back to a, or have you ever performed at brad garrett's comedy club and then mention that story well here's the story in 2012 okay when we were there the first time it was 1986 maybe around 86 fast forward to 2012 i'm performing at the MGM hotel in Las Vegas with Brad Garrett at his club. <laughs> and I told my wife, I remember because we were walking, we, it was a 15 minute walk to the stage from where we there kept us. And I was walking and I was talking to my wife and I said, you know, honey, it's really weird because I feel like my comedy has come full circle. Everything I've done and I accomplished, just like I was just sharing with you, I go, here I am, back where I started from. I feel like I came full circle. I feel like, I feel like here's my comedy career. It's done. Not done, but it's complete. It's complete. If if nothing ever happens from here, I completed. It was a completion. I, you know what I mean? I yeah. started with Brad Garrett and look where I'm at. I said, you know, I now that I've done that with comedy, I go, I need to step my game up now. I said, I, because I, I go, I'm an entertainer. I told my wife, I'm an entertainer. I don't just do comedy. I sing, I dance, I rap. I do all that stuff. I go, my dad is the one that turned me into an entertainer. I go, and that is when it, that's the night that it hit me. I had that epiphany where I realized, cause I always felt cheated in life. My friends, all their dads were live and they taught them a trade, cement work floors, masonry, mechanics, and all my friends had nice homes, they made big bucks and they had a trade. And I always felt cheated. I didn't have a dad that could teach me that, give me a trade. Well, that was a night that I realized how wrong I was. And I told my, I just literally just stopped. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was like, I could, I had to stop, bro. And I go, oh my God, honey. I could say, oh my goodness, oh my God, oh wow. And then she was just like, what, what? I go, honey, my dad, did give me a trade. <laughs> he made me what I am. 
And bro, I was tearing up and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, from this point on, I wanna fulfill my dad's dream because he was a singer. My dad was a great singer and he was, he used to, he used to sing with famous people, but heroin did him in and alcohol and drugs did him in, you know? And it stole, ripped this, stole this dream from him. I go, you know what? I'm gonna live, I'm gonna fulfill my dad's dream for him. And I made it that point, bro. I started a band, I got my band, I started getting music going, my music going. And I tried and tried and tried. And then I did a song, I, I recorded a song at the end. These guys sent me a video, cause they bought it. People were buying my song. And this guy sent me a video of him cruising down Whittier Boulevard. And I was like, and they were bumping that song that I did. And I'm like, whoa, uh, to me, I felt like I did it. I did it. I, 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 you know, I, I put, it was, that's what I thought. But then my daughter, my daughter, my youngest one, she's, she's 26 now. She's a musician. She's a songwriter. She's a, well, she has two songs that went to number one on local radio. Holy shit. Yeah. And to me, it was like, wait a minute. Okay. I thought that I fulfilled my dad's dreams. I go, no, my dad's dreams were fulfilled through my seed. Right. <laughs> Dude, it's just an incredible, incredible feeling and an incredible story. And, uh, but yeah, that's what happened when I performed with Brad Garrett. That's when everything came to me. And my mom, here, here's my mom. We're staying. They put us way up at the top, at this way up at the top floor, this really nice nice place bro and we were looking down on vegas and i could see when we were little kids when my mom had us all in the back of a greyhound bus running from my dad on the run and i remember in vegas they had a cowboy back in the day and he would wave a light it was a uh, right there where fremont streets at yeah the cowboy was there and he would wave and i remember that cowboy i would look at him from the back of the bus and here i am now 2012 and i'm looking down from the top of the world and my mom's making homemade flour tortillas inside the room. <laughs> oh, man. Ain't that a trip, bro? <laughs> if you're going to make it, you got to go by the roots, man. You can't change it, man. Fuck it. I love that, man. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah you know, man, yeah. I'm, but I'm, I'm like truly fixated on, on your approach of, of uh, the lessons you learned from or lessons you took from your dad. I, you know, it's funny. My dad, when we were kids, he used to, uh, he used to like joke around. He's like, Michael Jackson was a pussy. He's like, his dad gave him all his talent. He's a big fucking crybaby. He's always say that, like, joking around. And, like, because I remember we watched the Jackson 5 movie when we were younger, and, like, they show how brutal the dad is and blah, blah, blah. But, but I, it's when you're, when you're young, you're just, you're irrational, you're an emotional, you don't really understand what he's talking about. I get older, I'm like, yeah, man, I get, that's the truth. Like, it, he really did get all these talents. Like, was it done through the right way? Like, probably not. Who knows? But, I mean, like. It just depends on how the student takes it. It's, it's, you know, it really is that approach, man. You see, you hear it from athletes that are like, man, I would never even be here if I, if I just, if I didn't even have that, man. So like yours was a lack of his absence and you, and you turn that into like a, a fuck, man. That's, it's truly amazing what, what you, what you're, what you said right here, man. Honestly, I'm getting a little emotional and shit. It's just awesome, man. That's fucking cool. Cause I would have never expected that. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't expect it either, bro. I didn't realize it. Though. It took it. Like I said, it took an eye opening you know, like just uh, like an epiphany, you know what I mean? Like, whoa, wait a minute, you know? So, yeah, I didn't expect it either, bro. I didn't, you know, it's not something like I try to do. It just happens. And I believe it just, and, you know, and the message that I get out of that is, and I always try to tell dads is, look, man, you know, as corny as it may sound, a lot of dads can't be with their kids. You know, sometimes it's the woman trying to use the kids as a, as, you know, revenge, 
You know, they, you know, you see a lot of that. I, I've seen a lot of my friends and family go through that. The women use their kids as, as a weapon. You know, they don't realize you're hurting the kid. Yeah. You're not just hurting the dude. You're, you're traumatizing your kid. You're dropping him of his, of his dad, you know, and a lot of these dads, I used to walk my brother, I had my brother, I used to walk in a room and he'd be crying, man, because his wife, his girlfriend wouldn't let him, you see his kid. She would use the kid to punish my brother. And I remember I would tell him, man, you know, just wait, man. Someday she's going to drop him off at your door because she can't handle him because that's what she's doing. to Sure enough, that's exactly what happened, bro. Right. Couldn't handle him anymore. Dropped him off at Pop's doorstep. And Pop's had to raise a troubled, troubled kid now. But, you know, I always tell people this. I go, the lesson that I learned that night that to me, if you can't be with your kids, I believe that by faith, you can hand your kids over to God. Say, you know, you take care of them. You do for them because I'm not there. I believe that, bro. I really, because I've seen it in my life. I saw it, you know, and I believe things work like that. Like you said, you know, I don't I don't know much about God. I don't, I, I just believe that he is, man. I, I believe because I've seen too much to deny it. I've seen too many miracles and too many unexplainable things that are beyond coincidence that I cannot say that there is not someone out there who is bigger, more powerful, and who cares truly, truly, deeply cares for me more than anybody walking this earth. And I believe that if I give him all my cares, whether it's my family or my future or my past or my now, I believe that I, I can trust him with it. And I really believe fathers, you can trust your kids. If you can't be with your kids, hand them over to him. Hand them over to God. And matter of fact, while you're at it, hand your own life over to God. To me, if he's real and if he's there, he'll handle his business. If he's not, you're just wasteful, wishful thinking. But I've seen too many. I've seen too much proof, bro. Too yeah. much proof. I've seen. I've seen it. So, you know, that's my only. That's what I learned from that, bro. You know. You know what's interesting too, man, is like not a lot of comedians like yourself are. Uh able to perform anywhere man like that's what i've seen about you like you perform like you did the shacks comedy thing you've done churches you've done like comedy clubs you can perform anywhere man that's, anywhere that's hard really? to do man that's very hard to do very hard bro because you know i've done shows with comic jam comedians and in south central and i remember i had this one guy go up and he killed it man he killed it People were jumping up, screaming, doubled over. And he was dirty, bro. He was getting filthy. And I was sitting there on the side, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, man. You know, it's hard to follow shock humor. Oh, you comic, they're numb. They're numb. They don't want to hear your cafeteria jokes. They don't want to hear your little bump. They don't want to hear your little jokey jokes. They, they're already, they're, their state of, their, their sense of humor has been numbed by shock. You know what I mean? You better come with something that's going to, you know, these people are numb. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just sitting there. I remember I go, I was praying, bro. I was like, oh, come on, God, you got to help me on this. Bro, I went up there and I killed it. I killed it. And I even talked about God. I even talked about Jesus. And I killed it, man. I got a standing ovation. No shit. And after that, the, the, the Def Jam, the, the comedian, the, the Def Jam comic, he came up to me. He said, man, I want to learn to do what you do. I want to be funny like that, clean, yeah. you know? And I was like, you know, 
it's really hard to find funny, funny, clean comedians. So hard. Very hard. It was um uh to name uh Egan. Egan's clean. Um yeah, the white guy Egan. Is it Brian Egan? I think his name is Brian Egan. Uh, oh Regan. Regan. Regan, Brian Regan. He's he's clean, man, and he he kills it. And then you got obviously Fluffy's clean, and I, I mean he's the biggest goddamn comedian in the world. Like, I mean shit, he's going to the Middle East and doing stuff shows. So I mean there there is a there's for sure a goddamn um, economy there for it, man. And and you know what I always see is the most interesting thing is when a clean comic comes after a, like a dirty comic, for example, it's that first like five or ten seconds where you acknowledge how like dirty that guy was a little bit to the crowd, and then you kind of make a joke about it. But what that really does is it shifts them from him to you now and that's it's if kind of like if you don't acknowledge what just happened like they kind of like are you're right they're still in that state of shock and they're still like maybe not ready to laugh again for somebody new but like when you acknowledge the dirty comic and you kind of like saying like you can make any joke like oh that guy was like uh, you can say whatever he's a saint of a person it doesn't matter what you say but like you kind of like in transition slowly it's i think it's awesome when people do that because it's it's genius to get the people focused on you now oh man it's i remember like carlos would see a you know, nobody wanted to go after Carlos. There are certain comedians that I know that nobody wants to go up after them because it's just too hard. I've seen it, man, where, you know, we did a show in Oakland. It was an all black, all black comedy show. And uh, this one comedian goes up there and he destroys it. And the next three comics, nobody wanted to do jokes. They just <laughs> got up there. They played games with the audience. So they had to bring one of the local comedians to come in there to bring them back to the comedy. <laughs> That's, That's how right. But somebody would say like, like uh, somebody like Carlos Mencia. Carlos is a killer. Yeah. Carlos is a straight up screaming killer. He's got people screaming for like an hour and a half. So that, somebody like that, you just go up there. Somebody saying the trick is you just go up there give it up for Carlos, give it up for him, oh my God, give it up for him, and the audience is, woo, yeah, give it up for him again, give it up, and they say, woo, all right, and come on, we gotta get, and they just do it so much where they start hating him. <laughs> he goes, you know what, forget him, let's forget Carlos, forget, forget that fool, and boom, 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 next thing you know, they hate him, <laughs> now you go out with your stuff. <laughs> That's one little trick. <laughs> oh, guys, like, I just killed a set, 10 minutes later, everyone's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's genius, I've never done it, but it's genius. Oh. No, uh, usually, uh, usually what I do though, I just go up there and I just ride the wave. I just go with their wave. Yeah. You know, you know when somebody said something real funny, I'll go up there and I'll just use that same joke. You know, one time I had to follow Angela Johnson. Angela Johnson, you know Angela Johnson. Yeah. I had to follow her, and she told a story about some guy that I don't know tried to mug her in the, in the, the garage or something like that. Well, that's the joke I opened with. <laughs> you know, what I, mean? I went up there. Yeah, man, I saw this girl. I got her purse. I tried to get it, but she said, "You know, I, I say exactly what she just said." <laughs> Everybody starts laughing, man. They said, "But so now I got." It. Once I get them laughing at me, now I got them. It's easy. I, that's it. I just rode your wave. I'm not gonna try to fight you. I'm not gonna try to outdo you. I just want to get on that same wave you got, and just let me ride that wave. I'll just continue. Oh, I'll yeah. just continue the wave. You know, I'm not gonna try to out funny you. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, man. That's true, man. The audience, the audience always tells the goddamn truth. Sometimes you go to like a room and maybe like the Midwest, it's they won't tell you the truth as much. But like down here in LA, God, man, it, it, the crowds are brutal. If you're fun, if they're laughing, it's because it's funny. Like it, and they'll tell you when it's not funny. They just won't laugh. It's it's tough out here, man. So uh, what what is a 
what's your next uh, schedule looking like now? I know you said October 9th, right? But uh, what yeah. else do you have the rest of the October year? October 9th, and I'm waiting for uh, waiting. I just they got a contract, but I'm supposed to be doing the the sea cruise. Um, the sea cruise. Uh, they got this Legends cruise uh, with a bunch of, I mean, Zap and Heat Wave and all Little Joe, all kinds of bands. It's like sold out already. But I'm supposed to be doing that one. And wait a word on that. Also, Pelican Bay. At, uh, August 28th, Pelican nice. Bay. Yeah, I'm waiting for Pelican. I got some local stuff, but private stuff. But Pelican Bay, that's the one I'm waiting on right now to do the big yard at Pelican Bay. I've always wanted to do Pelican Bay. Hell yeah. That's the that's where they had the biggest riot in history there in that yard. And uh, to be able to do comedy on that yard, man, that would be a, you know, that would be a trip. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Make but I got I got prison stories, bro. Comedy and prison stories, prisons that I've done, man. I got some stories galore of stuff that I've done in prisons. Prisons are a trip. Those audiences are a trip. You know, I always get people because I always bag on people. People know when I'm up, you don't get up. Because if you get up, I'm on you. I'm on you, man. <laughs> Boom. I'm 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 bagging on you. And I get people that tell me all the time, hey, don't you get scared if someone's gonna get upset and offended at you? And I go, I've already had people upset and offended. You know, but I go, I can, I'm pretty good at judging when I've gone too far. And when I go too far, I know how to come back. I know I'm not afraid to apologize. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They always say rule number one in comedy is never apologize. I don't believe in that. I believe in rule number one in comedy is there are no rules. (laughs) Yeah, no shit, huh? That's another thing, man. There's, there's apparently there's rules nowadays. It's just, it's a crazy time we live in, but, uh. Richard Pryor didn't follow no rules, bro. Oh, <laughs> Come on. <Jesus> <laughs> He's the king of comedy, you know? Oh, my but God. I always tell people, I go, look, I bag on people in prison who murdered people for getting them upset. I bag on people that are in there for the rest of their life for murder. And I pick on them. And if I can pick on them, I sure ain't going to be afraid to pick on you. <laughs> Fucking A, man. That's the truth, man. That's the exact truth right there, man. I love it. You well, know what? Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, they asked Chris Rock, Comedian of the Year, Newsweek uh, Comedian of the Year, or Time Magazine, one of those. They asked him, what is your favorite, your all-time favorite comedy bit? And he said, without hesitation, Richard Pryor's prison bit. Damn. Richard Pryor did a prison bit about doing a show in prison with an acting troupe. And he 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 told the joke. And... It was about an acting troupe that goes and does a show in the prison and the warden comes out and he goes, boys, these kind folks have been down here to do a show for you and you best be on your best behavior. I swear for a guy, I'll put you back in your cell so quick, gonna make your head spin. You know, go ahead, come on. So then the actors come out. Okay, um, there was a black man. Uh, he was married to a white woman. And the warden goes, oh, hold on, hold on. Ain't going to be no show today. That's it, folks. Sorry, you know. And Richard Pryor goes, no, no, it's okay. The black man dies. Well, then carry on, carry on. Go ahead, go. <laughs> and so, anyways, so here I am, bro. Here I am uh, a few years ago. I'm in a prison in Mississippi, out in the boondocks, Damn. out in the middle of nowhere, all right? And when the committee, it's a, it's a Christian ministry. And what they do is they go out there and share the word with the inmates, but they bring in entertainers like singers and comedians to break the ice. 
you know, so they can share the message with these prisoners, give them a little right. gift. So here I am, eight o'clock in the morning, bro. Never done a show that early. Hell no. Never, never done a show that, but this, for us, some reason, they wanted to do a show at eight o'clock in the morning, this prison. And the, the rules that they tell the comedians are, you don't, the main rules are, you don't mess with the officers and you don't make the inmates, don't make them make any sudden movements, like come up here. Don't do that. There's no, because everything is controlled movement in prison. If you're moving without permission, looks like an escape, they'll shoot you. Oh, you yeah. Trouble. So those are rules. Number one, don't make fun of the officers and don't make the inmates make any sudden, sudden movement. So here we are. It's a some morning. I don't know what day it was. Saturday morning, probably. On the middle of the woods in Mississippi. And the inmates come out and they're mad, bro. They're mad because they got to get up early to come see this church program. <laughs> and they don't like religion, bro. They don't want nothing to do with no religion. They don't want nothing to do. Because that's the way it is, bro. So here they come out there with their coffee and they're mad. Everybody's mad. And here comes the warden. Did you see that movie Cool Hand Luke? No, i never seen it. Oh, man, you got to check it out with Paul Newman. They had a warden on there, bro. Had a white shirt, suspenders, redneck. White dude with a cap, with a fedora. Uh -huh. That same dude came out there, big old stomach, white shirt, suspenders, big old redneck, puffy, because he was a gordo, big old <laughs> redneck. And he comes out there and he goes, boys, these kind of folks are coming out here to do a show for you, and you better be on your best behavior. Or I swear for God, I'm going to put you back in your cell. Bro, word for word, like that Richard Pryor joke. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm over here. I'm mad because now the warden just made my job worse because he's getting these guys mad. They're already mad. I'm right. supposed to be funny. Now you just made my job 10 times harder. But I'm over like, I am in the middle of a Richard Pryor bit right now. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, bro. So anyways, so I get out there and I'm telling my jokes. Nobody's laughing except for the cop behind me, the officer. This dude, he's got an afro. Big old nasty afro he hasn't combed since the 60s. And he's got the nerve to have a part right here. He's got a part. <laughs> and I'm like, and he ain't got no teeth. This he is got a shirt out. This one is an officer? Out. Huh? This it's is an, an officer. officer. Holy shit. But he's the only one laughing, so I can't be mad at him. <laughs> right? So anyways, I keep looking back there, man. He's laughing. He got no teeth. Everybody over here, nobody's laughing. The officers were laughing, you know, but the guys weren't. So all I kept hearing was, don't make fun of the officers. Don't make fun of the officers. Don't make fun of the officers. And I kept saying my joke. And I kept hearing it. Because I wanted to say something about his teeth. Man, he had no teeth. <laughs> but I couldn't take it anymore, bro. I go, hey, bro, do me a favor, man. Can you stand over here? You're making me nervous. Because you know what I mean? I would turn around and I could see through his teeth. I could see the woods behind his head through his teeth, bro. <laughs> it's like, can you stand right here? Because I said anymore. I got to get this dude. Yeah. And so... And I just said, I go, man, what happened to your grill, dog? <laughs> dude, dude, these people started busting up. I said, you look like you've been flossing with a chainsaw. <laughs> man, bro, these prisoners jumped up and started running around in circles, homeboy. No way. I broke two rules at the same time. But, bro, if they wanted to escape, that would have been the perfect time to escape. Because you know where the officers were? 
They were on the ground, on their knees, slapping the cement, laughing so hard, bro. Because oh, I kept hitting yeah. this dude. His cigarettes had no name. He just said cigarette. I was going on off his t- I said, man, you look like you've been eating corn, corn on the cob through a fence, man. <laughs> I just went off on him, bro. I just, just, you know, just, bro. Anyways, but that changed the whole spirit. It changed everything. And then here come these guys after me with a message. Bam. Bam. Yeah. But comedy can do that. That's the power of comedy, bro. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, man. Comedy is the, the best foreign language there goddamn is, man. I, I believe that 100%. Well, yeah. uh, hey, uh, Gilbert Escobar, man, I promised you an hour. We did an hour, man. It was it was a complete honor to talk to you, man. I had a great time. Dude, I, I didn't know half these stories you told, man, but it was, it was truly cool to hear all these stories, man. Right now, bro. I'm glad, man. I had a good time. Yeah, man. We'll do it again soon, man. I'll make sure we'll try to get to that October 9th show. That sounds awesome. All right, my brother. You take care, man. man. You too. (laughs) Late. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Our interview with the great comedian out of Pacoima, Gilbert Escovel. Thanks again, Gil, for coming on the show, man. It was a huge pleasure for me, man. I always get a kick out of talking to comedians, man, and getting your guys' take on life and shit. And, man, it was awesome, dude. I had a great time. Uh, for all of you guys who want to know more about uh, Gil, I put all of his links in the podcast description. Uh, check out when he's on tour next. Check out when he has his next dates. All that good stuff. And um, go to at Alternate Take DR. Follow us on Instagram. See what we're doing next. And as always, thank you guys for tuning in, man. I really appreciate it. This is Alternate Take. See you guys later. Peace.